We will look at the book of Jeremiah and right next door, the book of Lamentations. And uh, there probably won't be very many studies that will combine books. There may be a couple of the minor prophets that we do that uh, because there are a couple of them that are like just one chapter or maybe three chapters and they're a lot shorter. So uh, when we get to those, we may combine some of the minor prophets. Last week we looked at uh, Isaiah and it was 66 chapters in that book. Jeremiah is 52. And so if you followed the same pattern as reading a proverb a day each month, you could read one chapter of Jeremiah uh, each week <laughs> and get through it in a year because there are 52 uh, books, uh, chapters, excuse me, in Jeremiah in that book. And the, um, the, the, uh, the phrase, the idea to think of throughout Jeremiah is stony ground because the people would not hearken to the, the preaching that he preached to them. And then when we get to the next book, Lamentations, um, the word lamentation or lament is a short word of that. It means to weep or to mourn or to cry. And that's exactly what um, Jeremiah did throughout his ministry. He's called the weeping prophet, and for good reason, because he wept often in, in, in the book of Jeremiah, and then you see it also in Lamentations. He wept for the city of Jerusalem, which is the main focus of both of those books. And so uh, Lamentations, and we'll get to it at the end of our study tonight, is five chapters, and it's, it's almost like he takes uh, the, uh, the descriptions he gives and the prophecies uh, that, he, that he proclaims to the people in Jerusalem and to Judah over the years of his ministry. It's almost like he takes at the uh, end of that, uh, that next book, Lamentations, and he takes all the uh, weeping and the, uh, the, the sorrow and the, uh, the burden for that city all in those five chapters. It's like writing a, a biography or something and going back and writing uh, some addendum chapters that go back and go a little deeper. And that's really what he does. He goes a little deeper in the sorrow for God's people uh, that they, uh, because of the destruction of Jerusalem. So as we go through this, and if we, as we've been looking, and if you uh, remember through um, remember through through our study of the of the kings in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, especially, um, we talked about how God had uh, told you know constantly uh, sent um, you know uh, prophets at different times to tell under each under of the kings and um, both Israel and Judah. You're sinning, you're worshiping all these idols, get rid of those idols and, you know, come back to me. And there were times where in Judah, at least, uh, it didn't happen in Israel, but in Judah, uh, those in the southern kingdom, God would raise up a, a king that loved the Lord. And there were about seven or eight of them, we talked about them. And so um, in Isaiah, and again here in Jeremiah, we'll see um, how, he, how they served under different, you know, various kings. So Jeremiah was roughly, maybe a little later than the time of Isaiah, but roughly pretty close to the same time. And as you see, Lamentations here on our travel timeline, creation, of course, we said about 39, roughly 4,000 B.C. And then Jeremiah uh, from 608 to 581 B.C. And then about the last five years or so of that, 586 roughly to 581 B.C. is when uh, he wrote Lamentations and uh, his sorrow and crying for the city. Uh, now, as we'll see tonight, what had happened was Israel, or excuse me, Judah had already gone into captivity to Babylon, but under Nebuchadnezzar, the city was going to be destroyed. And so uh, later on, after they're in captivity, the city's destroyed, and that's what Jeremiah records. So he records up to the time of the destruction of the city, 
Then he records when it's destroyed and after. So we'll get to that as we look at our outline. So um, chapter 1, let me see. Let me back up here real quick. I think what I did was write, include something before I, I was going to move it somewhere else. Let's see. Anyway, let's back it up here and just see the first three verses. So go with me in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and let's see uh, the time where he prophesies the kings under whom he, under he, whom he prophesied. So if you remember last week, we mentioned Josiah with uh, Isaiah. So Isaiah's time, would over, he overlapped Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah comes in towards the later part of Isaiah's time as a prophet. So verse 1 to 3, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So interesting here, Jeremiah is a priest, and he's, or comes from the line of the priests, rather, and he's also called to be a prophet. So he isn't actually a priest in the sense, but he does come from that line. Verse 2, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king in Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Verse 3, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, uh, unto the uh, carrying away uh, of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So he gives a time frame right there in those first three verses. And so he says, into the carrying away of Jerusalem. Now, again, uh, Judah had gone into captivity, but Jerusalem remembers the capital. And so some people stayed around until the city was completely destroyed. Uh, so that's the time frame, Josiah's 13th year, and then Zedekiah's 11th year, and then it, uh, Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiakim, who was the son of Jehoiakim, um, and then Je Zedekiah. Um, Josiah was a godly king. His son Jeho Jehoiakim was not a godly king. Anyway, so let's move on here. So he prophesied during the time of the prophet Habakkuk. I didn't write Isaiah. I should have put Isaiah in here too because remember they overlap. And then also Ezekiel and Daniel. So I won't go into that a lot tonight, but when we get to each of those books in our future study, we'll, we'll follow back a little bit to Jeremiah and, and see how they fit together. This helps us understand not only all the books of the Bible as we go through them individually, but it helps us see where they're together. And where sometimes they were contemporary, they were the same, everything, it happened at the same time. So to whom were those two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations, written? They were written to Judah, the southern kingdom, especially concerning Jerusalem. And again, he had, they had already gone into captivity when Jeremiah was preaching by the time he'd been preaching most of what he had to say. Um, Jeremiah is arranged more by subject matter than chronological order. Um, even though we know the time frame in those verses 2 and 3 in which he was ministered and served the Lord, um, everything's not laid out in chronological order. Um, and so uh, he, he kind of skips and goes back and forth in, in his writing. So let's start with Jeremiah and go through that, and then we'll get to Lamentations. And Jeremiah, again, is 52 books or chapters in that book. So we want to look at this, uh, break down to this. So let's go, I'll tell you what, let me... Let me, let me do this and then we'll come back to that. So chapter 1 is his calling. I'm going to back up and we'll come to that in just a moment. And that's during the time of Josiah. Remember it said the 13th year of King Josiah. Chapters 2 to 20, they are prophecies that happened prior to King Zedekiah. And then uh, 21 to 29, they're prophecies during Zedekiah up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's 29 chapters out of 52. 
Then when you get to 30 to 39, you see the future of the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah's captivity that happened. So again, remember we said it wasn't all necessarily in chronological order. And then 40 to 42, there are prophecies that are given to the remnant that are left in Jerusalem after the city's destroyed, after um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had already taken them in captivity and then Jerusalem is destroyed. And then chapter 43 to 51, those are during his last days, and he's actually taken to Egypt um, as he prophesies there. And then chapter 52 is fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we've gone over that real quick, so let me back up and look at a little bit about his life, his calling. So we read verse 1 to 3 a while ago. If you're still in chapter 1, pick up at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctify thee and ordain thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. So he tells him that before he was even you know, formed in the womb, God had ordained him to be a prophet. Now, the, the question comes in, has God already decided what everybody's going to do in life? Well, yes and no. He knows what everybody's going to do, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's decided that. In Jeremiah's case, he did. In Paul's case, Paul said that God called me from my mother's womb. And Paul wasn't saved until he was probably in his 30s. So um, God knows, and God had a special purpose for Jeremiah and for Paul and others too. So the exception to the rule often proves a rule that you know, God may know, but that doesn't say I'm determining that you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. But he did, he did uh, already before Jeremiah was born, knew that he was going to preach, that he was going to be a prophet to, as it says there, look at verse uh, three again, uh, 5 again, ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now his preaching was done to, uh, towards Israel or, or towards Judah and Jerusalem. But there are times where some of his preaching has to do with some of the nations outside of the land. And that's why he says that. And then, of course, before I formed in the belly, we know that God, throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, the sanctity of life is so very vital, and the unborn are very vital to God and important to God, no matter what laws are passed or changed or anything like that. God's already spoken about it. Chapter 16, we're going to skip around a little bit, uh, and then we're going to go back to chapter 12. Go back to chapter 16. He was told not to marry. So he's one of the, those in Scripture um, who do not marry. As far as you know, Paul never married. Uh, chapter 16 in Jeremiah, verse 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. So uh, he was not to marry. And when you look at his ministry, you see um, how uh, that spared whoever he would have married a lot, a lot of trouble. Because J Jeremiah, as we'll see before we get through, he went through a lot. He was the most persecuted prophet that is, that is recorded in Scripture uh, among all of them. He was, he was persecuted, and we'll see that in just a moment, actually. Go to chapter 12, verse 6. He's betrayed by his own kinfolk. Um, For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. So here he was uh, betrayed by his own kin, his own brethren, and then skip to chapter 20, if you will, and verse 1 to 3 on our GPS here. And here we see where he's beaten. This is one of the uh, couple of times that it's recorded that he's, 
He's actually physically goes through persecution, physically beaten. Verse 20, uh, 1 of chapter 20. Now, Pashur, the son of Emmer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Apparently, obviously, chapter 19. Verse 2. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet. Wait a minute, back up. Pashur is the son of Emmer, the priest, and he was also chief governor in the house of the Lord. This shows you how God's people were not wanting to listen to the prophet. They didn't want to listen to what he said. You remember when we ended 2 Chronicles 36, it said they um, misused his prophets, they despised his word until there was, Lord, there was no, no remedy, no remedy at all. And God said, you know, I've done all I can do with you. Now you're going to have to go into to, um, captivity. So uh, go ahead in verse 2, uh, the, um, that were in the high gate, put him in stocks, verse 2, in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah to him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, but Magor Mizabib. And so <laughs> um, that probably, you know, was not very flattering to him. But anyway, so he was beaten and put in stocks. That happened to him during his ministry. And then chapter 20, if you're still there, verse 7 to 9. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Now, folks, prophets have their day, you know, where things just aren't good to them. They're not right. And so he says, Lord, you deceived me. You called me, but now I'm, here I am suffering. Look at verse, uh, that was verse 7, uh, verse 8. For since I spake, I cried, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. In other words, he was ready to quit, but look what he says in verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. He said, I'm going to quit. All I do is tell people stuff and they don't listen or they throw me into stocks. But look what he says. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He said, the importance of the message outweighed my personal feelings. And that's what pastors have to do sometimes. Um, the importance of the message has to outweigh your own personal feelings and realize that it may hurt somebody's feelings, but, you know, thus saith the Lord. 26, chapter 26 and verse 10 and 11. Chapter 26, verse 10 and 11. And here we see where his own people wanted to kill him. I mean, it goes, you know, even deeper. When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house into the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. Now, part of that they had right. They did hear it, and he did prophesy against the city, but he wasn't worthy to die. Um, I mean, because he, he just simply gave God's message to them, and they didn't want to hear it. One more place, 37, verse 11 to 15. And again, we see he's imprisoned here. Again, as I mentioned, he is, he's the most persecuted that we know of of all the Old Testament prophets. Verse 11, 37, 11 to 15. And it came to pass when the army of the Chaldeans was broken up in Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh, of course, is Egypt. And so um, here we had the Chaldeans and the Egyptians um, that they were, you know, they were against them. Verse 12, then Jeremiah went forth out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin. Remember, J Judah, the, the southern kingdom is Benjamin and, the, and Judah, those two tribes, all right? To separate himself thence in the midst of the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the ward was there, whose name was um, Erijah, the son of 
Shilamiah, the son of Hananiah, and he took Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Thou fallest away to the Chaldeans. Then said Jeremiah, It is false. I fall not away to the Chaldeans. But he hearkened not to him. So Erijah took Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Wherefore the princes were wroth with Jeremiah and smote him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. So um, because the city had been destroyed, apparently their other prison that they would use for purposes had been destroyed too. So they were using this other guy, one of the scribes' house, to be a prison. So there he is in prison. So uh, we looked at, we went through this just a moment ago um, and looked at a breakdown or kind of an outline of it. And I'll skip back over this since we've already gone through this. All right, so J Jerusalem is warned of destruction from our mileage and efficiency, yet they would not get right with God. You know, no matter um, what all they had been told in the past, their, their forefathers, you know, through many, many kings and different prophets, they would not hear and get right with God. So here are some of his uh, prophecies that he prophesies. Now, the thing to understand with Jeremiah, as it is with a lot of the prophets, some things that they prophesy, and I think we said this last week, I believe I mentioned it about Isaiah, they are prophecies that happen immediately or sometimes soon. And then, and then also there are times where they have a double uh, application where they're repeated in the tribulation or will be repeated in the tribulation. Let's look at Jeremiah 1, verse 14 to 16. We were in chapter 1 a while ago. This is concerning the fall of Jerusalem in the very first chapter here. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Of course, that's Babylon out of the north there. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come and they shall set everyone, on his, uh, everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem. And against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshiped the works of their own hands. So in those few verses, he sums up the whole problem. They're, you know, worshiping other gods, and the fact that um, God was going to allow Babylon to come in and to, to destroy uh, the land and to take them into captivity. Uh, and then chapter 6 also is a little bit more description about that. Verse 1 to 6. Ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem and blow the trumpet in Tekoa, pronounced same, spelled different as our Tekoa, and set up a sign of fire in Beth Hasserim. For evil appeareth out of the north, and great destruction, of course that's Babylon. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman, um, you see that phrase, daughter of Zion and daughters of Jerusalem, several times throughout Jeremiah and Lamentations. And it's just a reference to them as a city, um, uh, as, as uh, God's people there in Judah, and especially the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, the shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about, and they shall feed everyone in his place. Prepare ye war against her, arise and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise and let us go by night, let us destroy her palaces. For thus hath the Lord God of, uh, God, uh, Lord of hosts excuse me, said, Hew ye down trees and cast a mount against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is, whole, um, she is holy oppression in the midst of her. So uh, that holy is not H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-Y, which means completely. So there's a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and then the fact that, they, um, that Babylon would later be, uh, that they would later defeat Egypt, chapter 46 of uh, Jeremiah. That whole chapter deals with that. 
Go with me to chapter 25, if you will, and let's look at a couple of verses about Judah, how long they would be taken captive. Now, when we get to uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, Lord willing, here in a couple of weeks, uh, next week, Lord willing, will be Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel actually refers to this reference that Jeremiah makes of the 70 um, 70 years of captivity. 25 verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. Uh, astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Uh, and then one more time in chapter 29 and verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now that verse um, he, he mentions in there that after the captivity, they will come back. And so they certainly do. Now, we've already studied Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember, we talked about they were the ones that came back to rebuild the city. So we've already went over their books, and that's what they, that verse is referring to, that, they're, that they'll be rebuilt. Nehemiah rebuilds the city and the walls and the gates, and Ezra and uh, his team rebuild the temple itself whenever it's rebuilt. Uh, then on the on the... Um, kind of following the uh, coattails of that, 2719 talks about the, uh, the, how the city will be restored. 19 to 22, chapter 27, verse 19 to 22. Thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars and concerning the sea, concerning the bases and concerning the residue of the vessels that remain in the city. What he's referring to is when Solomon built the temple, remember he had all this beauty. He had these big... Um, uh, the big, you know, the big pillars it was built on, and then it says the the bases, and it says the 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 uh, vessels and the sea. He had these just a big, elaborate, uh, beautiful where um, uh, the the water that was in a, a pool. And it doesn't even give the measurement of the size when we uh, studied about Solomon's temple and talked about it when we were in First Kings eleven. So anyway, what he's saying is all these. All, all this um, furniture that was in Solomon's temple destroyed will be, it'll be brought back. Uh, let's see, we're picking up 19, pick up verse 20. It wasn't destroyed, it was taken away. Right, it was taken away to um, Babylon, right. And well, I think it got into Egypt too at one point. Verse uh, 20, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took not when he carried away captive. Okay, so that's something he didn't take, but some things he did. So to answer your question, yeah, that's, that's a good point. When he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. So while they were in the land, basically Jeconiah uh, was the last king. Zedekiah was kind of a, kind of a puppet king put in place after they had gone into captivity, most of his reign. Verse 21, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon, and there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. So the ones that hadn't been taken were the ones that would be taken, and then finally all of it would be brought back. Then uh, 30 and verse 3, just a couple of chapters over. Um, for lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. So um, he says there will be a time where, where they will again come back to the land and to the city of Jerusalem. They would come back. So he prophesies those things that they would take place. And let's see. Let me skip for a second. Okay, uh, then you go to Jeremiah 31 and verse 15, and it is one place that is quoted in the New Testament. 
Um, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahel weeping for her children. In the New Testament, that's translated as Rachel, uh, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. That's a quote that's that's, uh, given in Matthew. Remember after Jesus was, after he was born, the wise men came later. And then uh, God uh, tells Joseph in a dream, go to Egypt, take your son, your wife, your son, go to Egypt uh, till I call you back. And he did. And so this was when all the destruction was going on, when uh, King Herod was destroying all those baby boys. Remember when he's killing all the, the, the little ones. And so um, that verse is quoted there. Now, that's not fulfilled in Matthew, but it just says this is like that. It's quoting, it's quoting that uh, same destruction. All right, that's an alternate, alternate route for uh, Jeremiah. So let's look at a tune-up for Jeremiah. Let's look at a few things here, uh, that, uh, things that are very interesting in, in the book of Jeremiah. There, like every book, folks, there's so much in here. We could spend a lot of time. We could go for a good while. But I would like to look at a little, uh, several of the places that not only were prophecies that he prophesied for Israel, but some very practical matters too. And then also uh, future that will happen in the future. Okay, 18 verse 1 to 6. I won't read the whole chapter. Um, about, two, about three or four times, I think, about three since we um, started our church. I think about three or four times I've preached a message over the years a few different times from this passage about the potter and the clay. Um, look at verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and I will call thee, cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, obviously, it directly applies to Israel. Because, you know, they're going to go into captivity and then later they'll be brought back. So obviously it directly applies to them. But there's a very practical truth in the Christian life. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're clay in the potter's hand and he's working on us. And sometimes he'll have to maybe, you know, start over or he'll have to, to rework something as a potter does uh, with, their, with their clay. I think I told this story once or twice on a sermon. When I was in uh, seventh grade, we... I wasn't in band. I should have been. I wish I'd been in band. But the kids that weren't in band, they had to take art. I took art. If you can see me in art, I can draw flies, mosquitoes, and gnats, and that's about it. You know, that's, that's summertime. It's a joke. Anyway, so um, one of the things that we were, we were to do was we were to take clay, and we were to, to form what we thought was our own head, Right? So I had the eyes, you know, and everything on it, and the, the nose and, and the lips and everything, and uh, I thought I was all ready to go. Now, back up. So the teacher says to all of us, said, now when you're making, when you use this clay, make sure you work it with your hands. We didn't have wheels. We just work, work it with your hands very well, because if you don't, there'll be air bubbles in it. Seventh grade. What does she know, right? So I get through quickly because I didn't want to do this. And I get through and I give it to her. So she says, so-and-so uh, and so-and-so and so-and-so this weekend I'll put yours in the kiln, the big oven. And then, you know, next week I'll give them back to you. So we come back the next week and my name was on the weekend list for the kiln to put it in the kiln oven and uh, come back and she hands other people their heads. She said, Barry, she just looked at me and said, Barry, yours exploded. <laughs> okay, well, I guess so much for me being a potter. So anyway, um, 
that was my experience with art and with pottery. Chapter 27, verse 6. Now, this is one of those marker verses this, this, uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah where, uh, as in all, these, in all the prophets, there are several verses in, in almost every book, sometimes just one verse depending on the book, but some of them have more than one. This is one of those marker verses, verse 6 of chapter 27. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. God calls him his servant. Why? Because he was bringing chastisement upon God's people. And the beast of the field I've given also to serve him. So this begins once Nebuchadnezzar um, comes in to take over uh, Judah. Now Israel's already been into captivity. But this begins the time, what is called the times of the Gentiles. And it's mentioned again in Luke 21 verse 24. And what that is, is that means that the governments from the time that Israel and Judah fell Judah was the last one. They went into captivity of the two kingdoms. Once they fell, once Nebuchadnezzar ruled over them as a foreign king, never had one of those before, as a foreign king, the times of the Gentiles began. And that means they would never have a real king until Jesus comes back. Until the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back to set up his millennial kingdom. Until then, they would not have their own king. Well, you say, what about Herod? Herod in the New Testament and before, during the, the, the silent years where there was no scripture written, when Jesus is born, remember King Herod, and then he dies, there's another Herod. It's a dynasty. The king uh, over Israel then was a puppet king. Um, he was placed in authority by Rome, and Rome was the world power at the time. So basically what it tells us here, that from that point, until, as we know later, go with me to Luke 21, till we know later the times of the Gentiles take place. There is no Jewish king over Israel until the king comes at the end of the tribulation. Then he will reign, and what he will do is he will then again join Judah, Israel and Judah back together as the 12 tribes together as one nation together. They'll no longer be divided once the king of kings comes in and sets up his kingdom. Chapter 21, this is one of the, the, of the, th of the four gospels. Three of them have the same information about the tribulation. And it says in verse 24 of chapter 21 of Luke, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. This is describing what will happen near the tribulation. And shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. It will once again be destroyed. Shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. When will that be? When the tribulation ends and Jesus comes back. Then no more times of the Gentiles. Right now we're living in that period of time. The church age is during the times of the Gentiles. So a uh, very important marker verse. 30 and verse 6 of Jeremiah, if you go back there with me, is one of the uh, great, also this is another marker verse, another great verse that describes what's going to happen during, or, or it, it talks about the, the tribulation. Um, 30 verse 6. Excuse me, that should be 30 verse 7. I put the wrong verse down there. 37. Yeah. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Why is it called Jacob's trouble? Because Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
12 tribes, right? So it's called the time of Jacob's trouble because Israel as a nation, remember his name was changed later from Jacob to Israel, Israel as a nation will be the focal point of the tribulation because the Antichrist will be after them. He'll want to destroy uh, the nation of Israel and all their people. And when the uh, church is gone, then God will again deal with Israel and it will be the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's, that is supposed to be a dash, Revelation 6 through 19, because those are the chapters concerning the tribulation in the book of Revelation. I don't know why I put verse 6 there. That was verse 7. Anyway, um, then the next thing is the millennial reign, and that is not correct. It should be verse 9. I was off a of verse on both of these. I don't know what I was doing. Got me off a of verse on both of those. But anyway, that should be verse 9 instead of verse 8 of chapter 30. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So during the millennial reign of Christ... Um, the Lord Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and David will be a co-regent, according to that verse, in another place, also in Hosea 3, verse 5. We'll get to that in Hosea and talk about it. So these are some of the, um, the key places in the book of, uh, of, of, of uh, Jeremiah. So last week when we talked about the millennial reign of Christ in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah describes more uh, concerning the... Um, the physical characteristics of, of uh, we talked about the animals. Remember the change in the animals? We talked about how the earth will be restored to its pristine. He talks about those details, whereas when um, Jeremiah talks about it, he talks about it in the sense of the things that will happen um, as far as uh, time-wise, as far, or not time-wise, but as far as um, ruling and reigning and so forth like that. He doesn't go into the physical details like Isaiah, but he, but he does describe it. Um, so speaking of that, 31, verse 31 to 34, describes the new covenant. So once Jesus comes back, he'll make a new unconditional covenant with Israel. And again, remember, Israel and Judah will be together as one nation. And he'll make an unconditional covenant with them. It's called the new covenant. Look at verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which was my covenant they break, although I wasn't husband of them, saith the Lord. So that refers to Moses, remember? And then they went through, you know, through uh, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then after that, you know, God uh, began to deal with them again. But he says, it's not going to be like that covenant. Verse 33, this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God says there's going to be a point where that's all going to be done away with. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a new covenant, and they will have my law in their hearts, not just the law, the Torah that they open and read. It'll be, be in their hearts. And he says, and they won't have to say to somebody, you should know the Lord. They'll all know the Lord, he says, during the millennium. Every one of them will. They'll know him. Chapter 32 gives an interesting story about um, a group called the Rechabites. They are only seen um, in this place in Scripture. But in chapter 32, verse 1 to 7, I hope I got the right place here. I do not. I do not. Um, 
Anyway, let's see. Somebody look on the, oh, I'm sorry, it's 35, not 32. Huh, I put the wrong thing. It's 35, verse 1 to 7, going with 35. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying. So he, he, he gives markers of time. Even though this isn't chronologically, he'll tell, you know, usually who the king was when he did these or prophesied these things or did this. Go to verse 2. Go into the house of the Rechabites. These would be descendants of a man named Rechab, Rechab, R-E-C-H-A-B. And speak unto them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah. Now that's a different Jeremiah. In fact, there are a couple of different Jeremiahs mentioned in the book of Jeremiah besides him. The son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. So he names some of the prominent ones, but it's all of the descendants of this man named Rechab or Rechab. Verse 4, Now I brought them to the house of the Lord, and the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Maaseiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. They said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Now look at the other conditions of this also. Neither shall you build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live in the, uh, many days in the land where you be strangers. So this, these descendants uh, were not, they were basically nomads. They, they weren't to live in any house. They just lived in tents and went probably from place to place. But they were all one uh, group from descending from this man. But they made this conviction about themselves. Our father told us you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons. And so they were teetotalers. They never touched any wine whatsoever. Just an interesting story in the book of Jeremiah that's only found there, nowhere else. When you get to chapter 50, I'm sorry. Nazarites, similar? Mm, it doesn't mention that. No, in another place, possibly. Nazarites, did they? Oh, dude, Nazarites, that's right. Nazarites wanted to take of anything of the vine, right? The grape marine. Right, but no, this is just a group. This is just something their dad had passed on to them. So chapter 52 uh, parallels almost perfectly with Second Chronicles. And remember, that's where the very last kings mention, and they go into captivity. And uh, chapter 52 parallels with that, with that. So, and I put that up there twice under tune up. Okay. So let's look at fuel up, and then we're going to have a few minutes to go into Lamentations. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13 we see um, where Jesus, uh, well, it doesn't say him here, but we know that this describes him, uh, the phrase, the fountain of living waters. The Bible, Jesus says, I am the, uh, I am the living water. That's one of the I am's in, in the gospel of John. Then, of course, uh, the, the woman at the well, he said, I'll give you living water um, that you know not of. And at the end of Revelation, it says, come all who thirst and drink of the water of life freely. Chapter 14, verse 8, he's referred to as the hope of Israel. And then in chapter 23.5 and also 33.15, he's called a righteous branch and a king. And um, that, the, that phrase, the branch, is found in another of the minor prophets. We'll talk about it more when we get to it. Chapter 23.6, I do want to turn to that one. It's, um, this is a, um, a name, um, in, well, it's in capital letters, but this is the name of the Lord. Chapter 23 of Jeremiah. I hope I get the right verses right on these things. Uh, and verse number 
6. In his, in his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. He's called the branch there in verse 5. We just saw that. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Our righteousness is not found in ourselves. It's found in him, and he is our righteousness. And then in 50 verse 33, uh, there's a reference to him as redeemer. Redeemer is one who buys, who purchases, and we're bought with a price. Um, Jeremiah, fuel up for Jesus. Then home address. There are so many verses. In fact, Sharon and I were talking about one earlier um, that I, I missed. There's so much in Jeremiah. Verses that are great, great verses. I love uh, chapter 5 and verse 5. In fact, I'm going to be starting a new series probably Sunday to go. We're going to, you know, we're going to continue in our prophecy series too, but I'm going to start a series of, um, of people in the Bible, most of which are unnamed. But God did great things in their life and through their lives, and uh, we're going to look at, look at some of them. And so one of the key verses with that uh, is, is found in verse 5. I will get unto me the great men, and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. So Jeremiah, in all that he did, you know, he served the Lord, but he wanted to look for men that, that loved the Lord, uh, as few as there may have been in his day. But look for them to to uh, for counsel for as an example, and so that's going to be one of our verses when we talk about some men and women of of scripture that are not very well known but did great things. Verse twenty five, the same chapter. Your iniquities have turned away these things. Your sins have withholden good things from you. Sometimes in the Christian life, we're limited in our life of blessing. It can it can squelch out. It can it can squeeze out our blessing um, when we're disobedient. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 16 tells us to ask for the old paths. Uh, and we, uh, we reject those in our day to our peril in, in Christianity. But it says, ask for the old paths. Very important. Chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, Jeremiah, probably some of the, most, uh, some of the best known verses from Jeremiah that you hear preached on uh, a good bit. Uh, it says in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. 23 and verse 18. I love this one. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord, who hath perceived and heard his word, who hath marked his word and heard it? I love that verse because uh, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but um, um, some people don't. But uh, it's several years back. Well, I'm, actually, this is more than this is my second one or so. But I got a Bible with wide margins in it, and man, I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's what I call my teaching Bible. I use it for with the notes in there. I refer to those a lot. So uh, it says, "Who has marked His word?" And literally, I think that's a good thing to do for for a Christian to mark references and so forth, notes that help you. Um, let's see. Uh, what's the verse we talked about, Sharon? You remember? Twenty nine eleven. That's one I missed. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. That's a great verse too, but you have to be careful with that because it's written, of course, to, to Israel, and it's written, I think a Christian can apply it. But when you're giving somebody the gospel, you want to be careful with that. I mean, you can add that in there, but you can't, can't go quoting that to somebody until they realize their condition that they need the Lord. So, uh, I mean, it's a great verse, and it's wonderful to think about the promises. And, of course, God wants to give, you know, uh, an unsaved person peace. He does, but it, that peace has to come through the Savior, through the Lord Jesus. Thirty-two seventeen. is there anything, uh, there's nothing too hard for thee. And then uh, 33, 3, the great verse on prayer, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things 
which thou knowest not. Great, great verse on prayer. I had a friend of mine uh, sent me an email the other day. He said, what do you believe about the name it and, name and claim it? Now, that doctrine's been around a long time, and there are a lot of them on TV. And I told him, I said, well, I certainly don't believe in name and claim it. I, I believe they have some you know, obvious errors in their theology. I said, but one thing is for certain. I said, there are probably a lot of things that Christians uh, should pray about, and we could get from the Lord if we would pray about them. Now, I don't believe in name and claim it, but I believe God would provide a lot more things for us than what he does if we would pray and ask him. Now, it may not be in our way or in our time, but I believe he would. Um, that verse right there is one of them. Um, the book of James says, you have not because you, you ask not. You don't ask for it. So I think on that, that, that part of it, we, we fall short on that. But the name and claim it part, I certainly don't believe in that theology. Anyway, I got off on that somehow. Lamentations means weeping or sadness or sorrow. Uh, it's five chapters, very short book. And this is kind of an addendum right after the book of Jeremiah. I'm sorry. Oh, bless you. I, I, when I'm talking, I can't, I can't tell. I'm sorry. I thought you were saying something. That's okay. Um, and so it's, it's an addendum and it describes when you read through it, man, you know, um, when we talked about Song of Solomon, how private that was, this is the opposite. This is something that's so sad when you read it, you'll cry. I mean, it's really sad that, that Judah and Jerusalem got to this point. It's really sad. And you can see where he pours his heart out before God and weeps in this book. So in chapter one, he considers Jerusalem's destruction. That is, he's thinking about the destruction that has already come and what's going to happen when they ultimately fall, which they did. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the remaining remnant, those who stay in Jerusalem after they'd gone, the rest of them had gone into Babylonian captivity, including when we get to, in a couple of weeks, Daniel. He had been taken into captivity. And so it talks about the remaining remnant. And then chapter 3, is uh, that chapter deals with the whole destruction of Jerusalem. And there are a few bright spots, a couple of bright spot verses, but it's a very sad chapter. And then chapter 4, it uh, kind of gives a um, history lesson of their past and then talks about their present uh, while they're in the condition they were in. And then chapter 5 is uh, God remembering Israel where, where um, Jeremiah, a very a personal before the Lord, um, reminds him to, um, to remember them uh, as, as God's people. So that's just a quick outline of the five chapters of, uh, of Lamentations on our GPS. So the thing about Jeremiah, when he preached, some of the prophets may have had this, they might have, might have felt this way, but rather than feeling validated whenever he preached, he was rather saddened at Jerusalem's fall. Rather than going, you know, I preached to them and I told them and look what God did. He did exactly what he was going to do. Uh, but rather than that, he was just, he was heartbroken because of what God, you know, had done to them or allowed to happen to them because they just continued to disobey. You know, he was right on the number, and he could have said, look at me, I did what God told me to do, and isn't that great? But he was sad by it. Um, tune up. Let's look at a few things in Lamentations. This is uh, the basis uh, or the verses for one of our well-known hymns that we sing, uh, found our hymn book. Chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So he's saying that as the city's being destroyed. And then there's a remnant of those, again, that live through it and that stay there. And, of course, there's some that are already taken away to Babylon. 
But, you know, he says, it's of the Lord's mercies. We're not all just completely wiped out. And so you can, you can take those verses and really spend a lot of time there and thank God for his mercy, for his compassion in our lives and uh, how faithful that he is to us. Um, let's see. So let's look a little bit about uh, just a couple of places that would describe Jesus in Lamentations. Chapter 1, verse 12 says this, It is nothing to you, all you that pass, is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? This is why the city, you know, is about to be destroyed. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Remember I said he's a weeping prophet, we said. And so he says, um, this is great sorrow that I have in my heart for, my, for, for, Israel, for Ju- uh, Jerusalem, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Now, that can apply in both ways. It can apply to Jeremiah personally, but it also applies to Jerusalem but that phrase I want us to look at, see if there be any, any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Go over with me to Matthew, if you will. Um, well, as you make your way, go to Isaiah for just a moment. Isaiah 50. We looked at this verse last week. It's back to your left. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. We looked at this when we talked about Jesus in uh, Isaiah last week. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks and the pluck the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So, you know, the description there, you can see that he was a man who, who was a man of sorrows and what he went through um, and, and, uh, and faced and, and took upon himself for us. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 26 and the, almost the end of that chapter, verse 67. Matthew 26. Verse 67. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. So all that he went through, the suffering he went through, um, he was definitely a man of sorrows. He's called that also in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows. So um, that's chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 30. I jumped, didn't I? Matthew 26. I jumped that one, so we'll go back to that in just a moment. But if you're in Matthew 26, let's look at this one. Somebody should have waved at me, and that's okay. Matthew 26, verse 38. This is the one about sorrow. I'm sorry. Then he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tear you here and watch with me. So uh, in Lamentations, he says, See if there's any sorrow like unto my sorrow. And Jesus, of course, he was sorrowful as he was facing the cross. Uh, he was sorrowful. Uh, as we said Sunday in our um, responsive reading, uh, it said the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, but he was sorrowful because now the, God, uh, the sins of all mankind were going to be placed upon him. God's righteous son, all the sins of mankind were placed on him. Then also all of his friends fled from him. They, they left him. And so he was a man of sorrows for several reasons. Now that we've already read that other verse in Matthew, we can back up to, uh, back to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3 this time in verse 30. We were there just a moment ago close by. For he giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him and is filled with reproach. And those are the verses we read from Isaiah and Matthew about the fact that they um, uh, uh, smote him on the face. They plucked his beard. We saw that. Uh, here's some very good verses from, uh, from Lamentations. They're not, it's a short book, so there are not that many of them, but there are three that I think are really uh, really good verses to um, think about and to maybe meditate on. Verse 15. 
All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag the head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? And uh, Psalm 48.2 calls it Mount Zion, the joy of the whole earth. Um, and so in the, uh, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, it will then indeed again be the joy of the whole earth. But it wasn't the joy of the whole earth when it was being destroyed, not at all. When Jerusalem was destroyed, it, that joy had left. Chapter 2, verse 18. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. There's that phrase again. Let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. And if you go back to, I uh, didn't write the references there, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, um, where Moses is talking to the people of Israel, he says that, you know, you are God, the apple of God's eye. You're the apple of his eye. And so description of, uh, of um, God's people, Israel. But, you know, that, that can be applied, of course, to the Christian. We also, I believe, are the apple of our Savior's eye. He loved us enough to die for us. And then finally, of course, we've already looked at 3, 22 and 23, great is thy faithfulness. So um, it's a short book. Uh, and if you read through it, you'll see um, there are places where, I didn't put this on the notes, I should have put it there. But when you read chapter 3, it's amazing. I was reading back through it this week where as you read through that, it's almost like reading some of the stuff in the book of Job. Some of the statements that he makes about Jerusalem um, and the sorrow and, and the um, what he was experiencing in sorrow and what Jerusalem was going to face. It's almost like reading some place from the book of Job uh, in, in chapter 3 there. So you see some parallels with, with Job also. All right, let's stop there. That's a lot in a night. We somehow did 5 plus uh, 52. We did 57 chapters, so it somehow. Anyway, any questions or any comments on Jeremiah? Yes, ma'am. Why do so many people say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? I just don't know what that's about. Well, you, you do want it to have peace because, you know, you don't want war there, but you do want to have peace. But also, ultimately, we know that um, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, will be coming back there one day. And so it's like, Lord, come on back. <laughs> Take over in Jerusalem. That's can we just say that? Well, we can, you can. <laughs> that, that, you know, I don't right. Know Right. Do they actually mean that? Well, they, you know, you want, well, that was written, was David King then? I have to find that psalm. Um, whoever was writing that then, it was a much more peaceful time apparently than, than what they were going through. But I have to look back, go back and look and see who it was. Well, it's just, it's all the people now. Right. On TV. Right. Peace, yeah. Peace, but I don't know why. Okay. Thank you. Well, there's, there's so many, so much opposition around them, you know, so. All right. Anything else? Lord willing, we'll try to hit the 48 chapters of Ezekiel next week. And um, several of those chapters toward the end um, all go together, and they're the same subject. But if you get a chance to read through it this week, uh, look forward to that. Lord willing, weather permitting, next week. All right? Well, let's stand and close in prayer, and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for the day you've given us, and thank you for your word. So much in this book tonight as we studied. We thank you for Jeremiah and for his example to Jerusalem, to Judah. Um, and even though, for the most part, they never would heed his message. In fact, they mistreated him and um, even wanted to see him dead. Um, he was a faithful man 
We see where there are times where he wept. We see there are times where he thought things were not right and he wondered at your justice for him. But we thank you that he was human just like we are and we can see from his life um, the importance of serving you, even when it costs us something. And pray that you'll watch over us as we leave here tonight and look forward to a day together worship on Sunday. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.